Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation. This is Valley Edition, FM 89's weekly look at the issues that matter to the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Hello, I'm Juanita Stevenson, and welcome to Valley Edition. On our program today, Proposition 37, we look at the battle over what some are calling your right to know. The ballot measure will require labels on foods that have been genetically altered. And climate change, Governor Jerry Brown unveils his new webpage to convince you global warming is real. As scientists say, 2012 will be the hottest ever. Plus, a farewell to Manzanar, this year's selection for the Big Read. We will let you know how you can participate. As consumers, many of us spend a lot of time reading the labels of the foods we buy. We can learn how many calories it contains, what all goes into the food item. Well, there is a proposition on the November ballot that will require foods containing genetically modified ingredients to be labeled as such. It is Proposition 37. Opponents of the measure are not only lining up against it, they are donating big bucks to defeat the measure. And a part of the initiative regarding what foods can be labeled natural is sparking controversy. From Sacramento, Kathleen Masterson reports. The fuss is over the language that supporters say aims to ban genetically engineered foods from being labeled natural. But now the state says the clause could be interpreted to apply to any processed food. Kathy Fairbanks is with the campaign that opposes the measure. She says the legislative analyst's office, the attorney general, and a judge have all weighed in on the language. And all three agree that the wording in this measure could be interpreted to mean that processed foods with no GE would be prohibited from being labeled natural. This would mean processed foods such as olive oil, which doesn't contain genetically modified ingredients, could not have the label natural on it. But Stacey Malkin and supporters of the proposition say that's not the initiative's intent. No reasonable judge in a court of law that was actually ruling on the meaning of Prop 37 would interpret the initiative to apply to non-GMO foods. It just makes no sense. The language voters will see on the November ballot will say that the measure prohibits marketing genetically engineered foods and processed foods as natural. In Sacramento, I'm Kathleen Masterson. We begin our discussion on the issue with Stacy Melcon, Media Director with Yes on 37. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Now, first of all, Ms. Melcon, what about the question over what foods can be labeled natural? Now, you say your opponents are using it as a distraction, but what about the conclusion from a legislative analyst office which states that the courts could apply the, the label uh, prohibition on all processed foods, whether they are genetically engineered or, or not? Well, the initiative is very clear and it's very simple, and I think this is distracting um, from, from what this is really about. It's about our right to know what's in our food and whether the food is genetically engineered. Now, the initiative itself, the title, the language, even the section that they're saying is confusing, all very clear. This is about genetically engineered foods and about labeling those foods. And a genetically engineered food is a food that's been had its DNA artificially altered in a lab by genes from other plants, animals, viruses, or bacteria. So the food has been changed in ways that can't occur in nature. And so the, the core question is, do we have a right to know if that's a part of the food that we're eating? And the, what the initiative also does is it requires foods that are genetically engineered to not be called natural because they're not natural. They were made in the lab. And so there's a lot of misleading marketing going on about uh, natural cornflakes and even baby formula and, and all sorts of foods we eat every day that contain genetically engineered ingredients, but we're not allowed to know about it. Why was it important then for Proposition 37? Is that the reason uh, uh, the uh, proponents of Proposition 37 wanted to try to define what what natural is? Well, the opposition is trying to make a lot of confusion out of this, and, and that's, that's not the only point. They're creating confusion in lots of ways, claiming uh, changing a label will increase the cost of 
food. And, I mean, just for example, you know, we just reported yesterday $10 million in donations to the opposition campaign from pesticide companies and big processed food companies, companies like Kraft and Co- like Coke, Pepsi, Kellogg, Nestle, um, you know, companies that are spending tens of millions of dollars um, to say, basically to convince consumers that adding a little bit of ink to their labels is going to force them to raise the cost of groceries. It's just well, well, let's take incredible. A, a, <laughs> let's take a look at, at some of what uh, the uh, opponents are, are arguing. And uh, you're right, just yesterday, um, the uh, group who opposes uh, their amassed huge uh, sums of money from what I read, just a few donors, all of them large um, companies. Uh, and when you look at who's donating to uh, the Yes on 37 a campaign, um, it's uh, it started out with just a lot of small groups and individuals. How are you going to battle back against somebody pouring millions and millions in, into opposing this? Into confusing voters. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think we have a huge strength in the people across the state that are so fired up about this issue. We're building a people's movement. You know, we had nearly a million people sign petitions to get that on the ballot. That was a huge number, and a lot of it was gen- generated by volunteers, literally thousands of volunteers across the state, many of them moms and grandmothers who are not typically out on the street petitioning for political issues, but they're saying, we want to know what's in our food. We have the right to know. These companies do not should not be allowed to to tell us what we're not allowed to know about what's in our food. It's just crazy. And also, I want to point out that this type of labeling of genetically engineered ingredients is already law in 49 other countries, in every other industrialized country pretty much, all of Europe, Japan, even China, Russia, and India just passed a law. So this is standard procedure. We just haven't been able to get it here in America because of the huge lobby power of this these companies. So now we're taking it right to the people, the people who are eating and buying this food every day and saying, do you want the right to know what's in your food? And we think people are going to vote yes and see past the deceptive ad campaigns. Well, let's take a look at, uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, some of the uh, arguments uh, your uh, opponents are are using. Uh, First of all, saying that the proposition is full of uh, special interest exemptions or loopholes because certain products uh, will be able to have uh, the natural label, whereas others, like I think they make a, a distinction between uh, cow's milk and dairy products or fruit juices uh, and, and alcohol. Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, again, they're trying to add confusion where there isn't any. The, the initiative does have some exemptions for practical reasons to make the law easier to comply with for companies. It was really written to encompass the foods that people eat most frequently that are genetically engineered. So that's the food on supermarket shelves. And it's mostly almost all processed foods at this time. Um, so what will not be subject to labeling laws are, is food sold in restaurants, um, alcohol, also animals that are eating genetically engineered food. Unless, but if they are genetically engineered themselves, then they would need to be labeled. For example, if there's a proposal for the first genetically engineered fish. That would be the first GMO animal in the human food supply, and it's a fish crossed with um, other species to make it grow twice as fast. And there's a lot of controversy over this fish. Uh, there's been a big fight in the Senate about we need to more safety studies. We need to understand what the economic impacts are of this fish. What if it gets free and mates with the rest of the salmon? What happens to the salmon population? And these questions have not been answered, and yet companies are rushing ahead to get approval, and, and it could be in stores, you know, within the next several months this fish could be approved. And so, you know, salmon is something, if we go to the store, we can see where it's, if it's fresh or wild-caught or farm-raised and where it comes from. We should also be able to know if it's actually a salmon or if it's a genetically engineered uh, animal. So what you're saying basically is you're really focusing on what what people buy when they go to the grocery stores and and you don't want to to get into this whole uh, different area of what you eat in the restaurant or buying alcohol or anything like that. Right. Okay. Uh, Also, one of the other things is that I've read that uh, there's no really scientific evidence that genetically modified foods are harmful. So 
Why is it necessary, you feel, to, to have it labeled? Well, the jury is very much still out on the safety of genetically engineered foods, and in many ways the evidence has not even been presented. There are no long-term human health studies, and the FDA doesn't even require any safety studies, which is really stunning to me. Um, and there, are, there is growing evidence of concern, links to allergies, um, other toxic effects, uh, changes to the nutritional content of food. I mean, this stuff needs to be studied. It needs rigorous long-term studies so that we understand the health impacts. And in the meantime, people should have, should have the right to choose for themselves whether we want to eat this food or not. We've seen a huge increase in allergies. People are increasingly sensitive to different kinds of food, and they want to know about the information about the food they're buying. So that's what this initiative will do, simply give them the right to know and put the power into the hands of consumers to choose for themselves. Uh, let's take another uh, a look at one of the uh, other uh, uh, reasons that your opponents say or urging people uh, not to vote for this. Uh, Again, uh, the opponents are saying that it will mean more bureaucracy and that it's going to cost taxpayers uh, money because you're going to have to, you know, hire somebody to monitor all all of this. And and then it's going to mean, you know, higher food uh, prices. Well, I think think that's all just smoke screens. I mean, you know, labeling is just something that we do. It's something that food companies do. It's, it's, you know, they label for fat content and calories and allergy information, and, and they should also label for GMOs. And they're already doing it in 49 other countries. So I think, I think that's just a lot of smoke screens. And do you think it will add to um, or lead to, to higher food costs? And and they mentioned that because of the label and packaging, but most of them are doing labeling and packaging already. Correct, right. And and the the law gives companies 18 months to change their labels, and and they're typically changing their labels in that time frame anyway. So there's no credible case to be made for this uh, having an impact on grocery costs. And basically, though, what you're saying, you're you're not arguing at this point whether it's good or bad. What you're saying is that the public should at least have the right to know, and then they could make their own decision. That's right. This isn't a referendum on GMOs and whether they're good or bad. It's simply about do we have the right to know as consumers what's in the food we're buying to, to make the choices for ourselves. And we know from polling across the country that a huge majority of people, 90% of people, uh, and that includes both political parties, all demographics, pretty universal. People want to know if their food is genetically engineered. And consume, I mean, this is a free country. We have a right to know what's in our food and to make the choices for ourselves. That's the way the market is supposed to work. Well, what do you think there was, uh, because his campaign was going along, and then you did just the other day, have um, these huge corporations uh, pour a lot of money in, into this um, just this week. Uh, yeah. How are you going to deal with that, and why do you think that happened? Well, it's surprising that it came so early. We think it happened because we'll, we'll very soon start to see um, a huge deceptive ad campaign blanketing the state, uh, probably TV ads. It is a little surprising to see it before Labor Day for a November election, but we think that's because they're very nervous because Prop 37 is really strong in the polls, 69% support, uh, according to the recent polls. Um, and like I said, a, m- a million people nearly signed our petition. We've got a huge, strong grassroots network and also really strong on social media and lots of people linking up, up with us at caRightToKnow.org. And I think that they're, they're just really going to go for the big guns as soon as they can and getting out those deceptive ads. You know, we sort of saw that with uh, during the June primary uh, proposition twenty nine, and uh, when it when it started, um, uh, it had a lot of public support, and and then in the end, it was defeated because uh, there was so so much money poured into that. Are you concerned about that's will happen with your campaign? Basically, something that started out as a grassroots uh, campaign, very basic. Um, well, we've certainly looked at that, and it, and it was. Um it's, it, there's many interesting comparisons. You know, some of the same people behind our campaign are, have been tobacco lawyers and people who've really been pushing deceptive tobacco storylines. So 
behind the no campaign on 37. So we have some of the same players as the tobacco industry, but I think it's a different situation um, because the opposition to Proposition 37 really doesn't have any uh, strong, meaningful storylines. I mean, they're they're basically just creating smoke screens, trying to convince people that labeling is confusing and scary and costly, and it's just hard to make those arguments when this labeling is already in place in 49 other countries. So do you think this will... already label for so many things. Do you do you think it will lead to lawsuits? Um, no, I you know people. I, I don't see why companies would violate uh, the law when they're accurate in their labels in so many ways. It just again a, a, a scare tactic to try to make this sound confusing and scary. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you so much, Stacy Melcon, with uh, the Yes on Proposition uh, Thirty Seven Initiative. Uh, Thanks for joining us to um, add your comments uh, to this uh, issue, which I'm sure is going to be discussed more. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Joining us now is Carrie Hammerstrom. She's the president of California Women for Agriculture and uh, a peach and plum farmer from Fresno County. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Anita. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is the opposition to this? Basically, what they're saying is people should have the right to know uh, what's in the food they eat, whether or not it has been genetically altered. Um, well, Juanita, I, as someone that supports the No on Prop um, 37 campaign, there's there's several reasons that I see with it. Um, one, it's really a deceptive labeling uh, proposition and what happens is that propositions often get written and not vetted and it's a very poorly written and it impacts me personally as a peach farmer because it it in, it says that it will it'll it is the inability to market my non-GE um, processed peaches uh, as natural um, the proposition says anything that's processed can no longer be labeled as natural and my peaches um, gets picked, washed, sliced, and put in cans or juiced, and it can no longer be labeled as natural. And that's a big concern of mine. I think that um, having uh, a mandatory labeling that doesn't provide any meaningful information really provides a scare tactic to the consumers. When already on labels, it has the nutritional content and it has the ingredients that are in the products. Well, you know, uh, but... Flowing from that, when you say they already, a lot of this is already labeled, uh, all they're saying is that people should just have the right to know. And as we know, uh, we already have a lot of labels on food, and they tell people the fat content or whatever. And if people want to eat it, they are going to eat it, mm-hmm. uh, no, no matter what. I mean, we see that with fast food. But the point is what they're saying, people should just have the right to know. You know, Anita, I think that the information that you that one desires is already on the label if they read it. And as a mother and who is has small his younger children, I take the time to kind of read what my labels are. Um, this proposition, though, has so many exemptions that it won't apply to anything that you buy from a restaurant. Um, it when currently right now about forty to seventy percent of your products, processed products in a grocery store, have. Um, GE ingredients. However, it's going to exempt dairy. It's going to exempt alcohol. It's going to exempt meats. Um, and it's also going to um, re- take away the ability to label things that are natural that don't have GE products that, are, that have been processed or juiced. Say, um, I, I also grow fresh sugar plums, and traditionally a lot of the fresh sugar plums go to dehydrators for prunes. Those would no longer be natural. I ate spinach last night, frozen chopped spinach, and it said on the product, on the label, all natural. Well, that would no longer be considered all natural because it was, it was picked and chopped and put into a bag. So I think that the way that the proposition has been written, it really it takes away the ability of a farmer um, to be competitive, and it ends up having these costs that are only impacting Californians uh, because it... things will be relabeled only for California. How does it take away uh, your ability to be competitive? Well, when you have other states that don't have this um, requirement, my peaches here in California would not be natural, but in other states they would be natural. So I'm having to pay for different labeling costs. 
um, it impacts my bottom line because when I send it to the processor, they adjust, they'll adjust what they pay me for, for my la- fruits of my labor. Um, and it also, when you have a label on something that is, does not provide meaningful information, it kind of causes people to take pause and really kind of scares them if they don't understand that. And I'm concerned that folks don't take the time as it is right now to really learn what it is to eat as a healthy diet. I mean, it, it takes a lot of work to eat healthy or to balance your diet. And right now I believe that the information that you need is on those labels. But a lot of the people who are proposing this uh, are saying they would like to know whether or not something has been genetically altered to make that particular choice. And then it can be up to them whether or not they they think that it's healthy or that it's not going to be a problem. I think that's what they're saying is the crux of uh, their uh, campaign. Yeah, and I I think agricultural biotechnology is probably the most intensely studied agricultural innovation of all time. There have been more than 400 studies that have been done. Um, you have 3,400 plus um, scientists and studies that have been done that have been peer-reviewed and vetted that say that there's no scientific justification for special labeling of bioengineered foods. They are not unsafe. Um, they are perfectly safe. Um, if people want to eat more healthy and know what's in their, their foods, they need to read the label now. That information's there. Okay, so you're saying that uh, information on the label does, they can determine whether or not something has been genetically engineered or genetically altered that's already there? Yeah, for, for, the, for the most part, anything, your soy, soy and cornstarch, um, those tend to be your genetic, come from genetically engineered soybeans or from corn. Um, you know, it, just, it really, the way that the no on prop, the way that the Prop 37 has really written, though, it also impacts natural foods. And I'm concerned that when, when folks are looking at products and they're looking to purchase things, and you, it's no longer labeled natural, and it is natural, that's a big concern of, of mine. You know, is, that, you, is, is that one of the major oppositions, you think, when, when, uh, because there's been this effort and a lot of people have not taken it on, when you start trying to define what is natural and what is not natural? Yeah, the Superior Court, uh, the Attorney General's Office, and the Legislative Analyst's Office all have verified or validified that the way that the proposition's written, it would limit the ability of non-GE foods that are processed to no longer be labeled natural. And then it provides a whole series of, opens the door for bounty hunter lawsuits where it allows for the ability of lawsuits to occur without just cause. And so you're causing the farmer really to have to go back and do some additional record keeping in addition to the record keeping that we do for, um, for everything else, which is intense. Um, and as a small farmer, and my husband and I both work full-time jobs and farm full-time, um, the labor uh, on top of that for the, the burden to us is going to be pretty intense. And I'm just concerned about, you know, the mom-and-pop stores that now have to, who have, may have something on their shelves that w- wasn't labeled properly, and so now they can get sued because there's a, the trial lawyers are just, they're loving this, the way that they've, they've written this. And well, they, they, the, the um, people who are for uh, Proposition 37 has said that, that um you know, most companies and processors already label their food and they're going to be given, you know, 18 months to uh, relabel products. So it's not like it's something that you're going to have to do overnight. And since most products already have labels. Yeah, but I'm really thinking about a lot of the mom and pop stores that you're already in, they're already in communities with double digit in employment and maybe the product's not moving off their shelves. So they're going to have to pay for, um, Taking things off their shelves and then re-putting, restocking it, uh, and if they somehow they miss something, that there's going to be a, a lawsuit waiting to happen. As a as a grower, I've now got to prove that my my peaches are not from genetically engineered um, rootstock, although they are um, crossbreeds. I mean, this is where you get uh, pluots and some of your other um, uh, produce. It's, especially stone fruit that has for years had been through crossbreeding, which is a type of uh, biotechnology that's been around for 10,000 years. 
but in most stores, if I if I go to the grocery store and I buy a piece of fruit, and if it's something that has been changed, you know, we see that already in stores. I mean, they're they're telling people that already, in a way. So I, I'm. When you see something that says this product contains GE ingredients, but it doesn't say anything else. And you're saying that's going to be confusing to people. I think it's going to be confusing because it doesn't provide for any meaningful information. But if you really want to eat more healthy, then you really need to stay away from high sugar content and balance what you eat. And and, and what about this, you know, just this week, uh, the opposition, you know, it started out with uh, this campaign, uh, both sides uh, maybe having 2 to $3 million dollars. And uh, then uh, the opponents of uh, Proposition 37, uh, they were able to amass over $12 million from about 90 donations, all of them, some of the biggest food manufacturing companies um, in the country, like Smucker's, Dalmani, Hershey, uh, Sunny Delight, Sara Lee, Kellogg, Campbell Soup, Pepsi-Cola. Why do you think these people are jumping into the uh, campaign? You know, I, I can't speak for them. I only know that as, as a as a voter and a consumer and a mother and a farmer and from an organization that's also that is a grassroots organization, California Women for Ag is an all volunteer, nonpartisan grassroots organization. That we see this as something that is not necessary, and it is confusing and misleading. Do you do you think it's your, it's your opposition too when you say that it's uh, misleading and not necessary? Uh, if it was written a different way, would uh, that uh, be more acceptable? You know, California Women for Ag has never supported mandatory labeling. Um, if if it if if folks want to use it as a marketing tool, then I think that's something that they can do. But having a mandatory labeling of something that's not necessary is not something that we support. Okay. So you do not support any kind of labeling? No, we do not support unnecessary mandatory labeling. It doesn't provide you with, with factual information. Okay. Then now, what what can we expect to see, especially uh, locally when it comes to this uh, campaign? You know, we are a huge ag area. Uh, do you think many of the local growers and farmers are going to get involved in this? You know, I really would hope so because it really impacts the this area. We're a big um, clean peach growing area, and that's what my husband and I grow, and we our peaches go to the canneries. You know, we already saw the loss of a 1,000 jobs for this next season from Del Monte. They're going to close their, their Kingsburg facility. So I, I think this is something we look really closely to when we're seeing areas of double-digit unemployment, a loss of a 1,000 jobs in a community that only has 12,000 people. That's huge. So um, I, I would hope so. I really would hope so that farmers would stand up and take notice and be concerned about their ability or their inability to market their products that would get processed as, as natural. I, I really think this is something that farmers should be concerned about, and they should vote no on 37. Okay. Thank you, uh, Carrie Hammerstrom, president of the California Women for Agriculture and a peach and plum farmer from Fresno County. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. I am Juanita Stevenson, and you are listening to Valley Edition. Support for Valley Edition comes from Kaiser Permanente Fresno and Coahuila Delta Medical Center. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Valley Edition. Welcome back. I'm Winita Stevenson, and you are listening to Valley Edition. Well, many scientists are saying that 2012 will go down as being the hottest year ever in the U.S. At the same time, California Governor Jerry Brown has unveiled his new webpage. He did it just yesterday, uh, talking about uh, climate change and wanted to relay what he calls just the facts. Now, as we all bake <laughs> this summer under this summer heat, um, our guest today will discuss climate change. Is it real? Joining us is uh, Sean Boyd, lecturer of Geography Department at California State University of Fresno and the State Center Community College uh, District, and also Professor Noah Deffenbaugh. He is a professor at Stanford University School of Earth Sciences and a fellow with the Woods Institute for the Environment. Thank you both. Um, 
for joining us today. It's it's very appropriate to be talking about this um, issue uh, as we are baking this week. Um, I should say Professor uh, Deffenball has not joined us yet. We hope to get him soon. So we'll begin with you, uh, Sean. Morning. <laughs> You know, could people say, you know, we we go through this from time to time where it's just plain hot. We Those do. of us in the in the valley are are sort of uh, used to to that. But um, we have to admit, when you look at this year and when you look at the the map of the entire United States and what what we're experiencing, uh, you you do have some scientists. Matter of fact, uh, new research just published. And what is called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, stating that the high summer temperatures, the longer summers, wildfires, and drought, that we can expect that to be the norm. And they say it's all driven by climate change. And matter of fact, the scientists who who, who did this and did the research on this studies are saying that there is no other explanation for this. You agree? I do agree. Um, now, I, I certainly don't have the pedigree of these scientists, no question about that, and I try to look at it from a regional and statewide level. But uh, if if you just look at the numbers, uh, one of the most interesting statistics that just uh, came out recently, and this is based on data from the National Climatological Data Center, the NCDC, which is the keeper, the storehouse of all the climate information, the daily weather observations that are gathered throughout the United States. Uh, and the statement that came out just last week that um, – in 2012, in the first seven months of 2012, we have had in the United States just over 27,000 high temperature records broken, which exceeds already the entirety of 2011, which is just an enormous uh, piece of information. Now, keep in mind that there are really four kinds of temperature records on a daily basis. We focus on the hottest high temperature because we're miserable, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Like this week. Yeah, like this week, okay, here in Fresno. Um, there are four kinds of daily temperature records. There is a high daily maximum and there's a high daily minimum. There is also a low daily maximum and a low daily minimum. So what we're talking about are two kinds of high temperature records that could be tight or broken on any given day and two kinds of low temperature records that could be tight or broken on any given day. Um, What's interesting to note is that here in Fresno and in the San Joaquin Valley, because I, I know we have a number of listeners in Kern County as well, um, if, if you look at the numbers here in Fresno specifically, we have only tied one high temperature record all summer, one. I, I know it doesn't feel that way outside right now, but if you're talking about the highest daily maximum, that was on July 12th. The high was 109. We tied it. Um, Yesterday, we came within two of time. It was 110. The record is 112. Um, we are seeing a lot more records on the minimum temperature side. For instance, this morning, I don't think it got below 80 in Fresno. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very warm morning. So that's where the records for highest daily minimum temperature come in. So you can see how we can have four high temperature records. So with respect to what, is going on, what has been going on nationwide – uh, the San Joaquin Valley is not faring uh, too badly. Really, the heat wave in the central and eastern United States started in March. Right. So I, I, I think what you're saying, is it's, it's for those of us here in the valley, you know, we know it gets hot and we're yes. used to the heat. But what you have to look at is what's going on in other parts of the country. Absolutely. Where this is not uh, the norm. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of the things that they have pointed out as far as significant events in July that you really have to consider are like the fires in eastern Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, they call it the largest wildfire to impact that state since the 1840s. Uh, remember earlier the wet weather we had in parts of, of California and Nevada earlier this year? And also the fact that 63% of the nation right now is experiencing drought conditions. Yeah, a, a severe to extreme drought. If you look at what's called the PDSI, which is the Palmer Drought Severity Index, which looks at things not just on a national level but also on a regional level based on what is so-called normal for a region, um, you know, pretty close to, you know, like you say, two-thirds of the country is experiencing this. Uh, this is having an impact on livestock. It's having an impact on corn prices, um, all kinds of things. Uh, there was another interesting statistic that came out the other day by uh, Dr. James Hansen, who was actually on the PBS NewsHour. Dr. James Hansen was formerly the director of NOAA, 
And he was also one of the researchers on this study that, yes. I, that I just uh, mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, and if, you're, if you know anything about statistics, and I am not a statistician, uh, it's difficult – any climate scientist will tell you that it's difficult to take one particular event like a heat wave and tie it to global climate change. That's pretty much impossible. But if you have – in a recurring frequency of extreme events. And he's talking about uh, extreme events occurring in the last 30 years in the United States weather-wise on the order of, say, two to three standard deviations on the plus side of the graph. That kind of tells you, okay, we have to wake up and take notice here that this may very well be attributed to, uh, to climate change, which uh, the IPCC says is mostly induced by human activity now. And uh, for our uh, listeners... Uh, what do you feel about this? Uh, do you do you think there's climate change? Do, do you uh, believe in uh, global warming? And uh, can, are you concerned about it right now and what it could mean, especially for us here in the Valley, because of how it could impact our crops? Uh, please give us a call. You could call us at uh, 800-224-8989 or 559-275-8989. Or you can email us at talk at kbpr.org. Org, um, and that's one of the uh, the things that was mentioned as well is that um, what is causing this is it is it us humans? Well, and it, I and I know there are arguments on both sides. We, we have to say that. Yeah, and you know it's important just to look at the science because. Uh, uh, when when people ask the question, do you believe in global warming? Well, this isn't a worldview like, say, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. It's this is we're talking about science here. So uh, ultimately, what we do about it uh, does become a, a matter of public policy and a philosophical question. There's no question. But when you're looking at just the numbers. Uh, the, the biggest culprit is the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, and in order to make it easier to look at mathematically, climate scientists look at the composition of the atmosphere and all its gases on a sort of a pie chart. And prior to what we call the Industrial Revolution, which is in the 1830s in the Midlands of England, we started using coal to power machines to manufacture you know, consumer products. Uh, the uh, average uh, uh, CO2 content of the atmosphere was roughly around 280 parts per million for a good 10,000 years or so, maybe even longer. Uh, now it's up around 390 parts per million, and the most attributable cause would be the burning of fossil fuels. Now, uh, it's also important to remember that and most of us here in California don't think about this because most of our power is hydropower. About 77 percent of California's electricity comes from hydroelectric power. But if you look at the nation as a whole, 52 percent of all of our energy comes from coal. Coal is not a clean fuel. And what's the significance of carbon dioxide? It's one of those unique gases in the atmosphere that can hold heat energy, long-wave radiation, close to the Earth before it gets radiated out to space. So that's – and that's why we also study other planets too. For instance, Venus has an atmosphere that's 96 percent carbon dioxide. They have a runaway greenhouse effect. So we like to look, know what's going on in the rest of the universe to see if those sorts of principles can apply here. So uh, carbon dioxide is the biggie. There are some other greenhouse gases that we don't have probably time to get into, though. Uh, we do have uh, Dr. or Professor Noah uh, Daffenbaugh uh, from Stanford University uh, joining us now. Thank you so much, uh, Professor, for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. And uh, from what I've been able to read, now you've done a lot of research uh, in this area, and you've also looked at the role humans are playing in, in this. What what have your research and your studies shown? Well, we're trying to understand, um, you know, what what creates the the climate phenomena that that most impact us uh, directly, uh, the humans and other and other living things, and these often. Uh, turn out to be extreme events like heat waves and and uh, droughts and 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 heavy precipitation. Um, so we're we're trying to understand what makes those events happen in our current climate and how those events might respond to to further global warming, and critically what uh, what the sensitivities of different natural and human systems uh, may be if if uh, if global warming continues. 
And uh, one of the things you've also looked at in research that I found that was fascinating, you, you talked about that uh, your research showed that by 2040, uh, the amount of land suitable for, let's say, cultivating premium wine, wine grapes would shrink by 50% due to global warming. So what you've looked at is how this might uh, affect our, our food supply. What are we looking at? Well, for the premium wine grape, uh, work, you know, where uh, wine grapes are a, are a particularly sensitive system. Uh, you know, there 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 are grapes grown in a lot of different environments, but most of the value of premium wine grapes is concentrated uh, in a pretty narrow geographic area with a pretty narrow climate space. And so, uh, we might expect that uh, as as uh, climate changes, as as the global warming occurs, that uh, the areas that are most optimal for growing premium wine grapes and potentially other agricultural uh, products uh, may change as well. And, and wine grapes are an interesting uh, test case because they are sensitive both to heat and cold, and there's a lot of uh, subtlety in uh, within kind of the suitable temperature range. Uh, so the 50% figure that you, that you cited, we reported that uh, potential 50% decrease in Napa County and Santa Barbara County, but also that um, some areas such as in the Willamette Valley in Oregon could potentially see increasing uh, suitability from a temperature perspective uh, with warming. Uh, so we're we're not certainly not predicting the demise of the of the wine industry in the United States, but we we do expect that um, that as climate changes, that that the systems that are that are reliant on climate now will will potentially. Uh, need to adjust or experience uh, suboptimal conditions. And when we, your, your, your research just looked at wine grapes, but when you look at the food supply in general, I mean, especially for uh, us here in the Central Valley, uh, how could a global warming affect what is grown? I mean, we look at parts of the country right now that are experiencing uh, extreme drought, um, well, so we impact? have we have some of the recent work on on corn prices in the U.S. and the volatility of corn prices and how um, climate affects the volatility of corn prices and and also how uh, energy policies and energy prices uh, such as oil prices and and the U.S. biofuels mandate uh, affect that volatility and we found that uh, at present um, you know that the events like like what uh, the the central u s is experiencing this year with, with very hot conditions during the summer um, you create supply side shocks that that create uh, volatility in corn prices um, and we found that the biofuels mandate uh, that energy policy uh, exacerbates the the price volatility that comes from those supply side shocks uh, by removing Supply from the from the food markets and, and moving that supply into the energy market, um, and then we've also looked at at uh, what may happen with with further global warming. So, you know, I think that um, there is there's not much evidence that that global warming will uh, destroy the global food supply, but there is quite a bit of evidence that uh, that the both stresses and opportunities from climate change uh, will will uh, Create uh, opportunities for for adaptation in in different areas, uh, Professor. What is if I if I can get it, your opinion or your take on what this country is experiencing uh, this summer when we talked about uh, the wildfires and the extreme uh, drought and and uh, the hot, the hot temperatures in places where we normally don't see them. Uh, in terms of in in terms of the relationship to global warming, yes. or yes. What, what specifically? Um, well, so you know, we we uh, we understand the the global mean temperature quite well uh, in terms of the amount of energy that's that's coming from the sun and and the amount of energy that's being um, being trapped by by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so we understand quite well that. That uh, increasing greenhouse gas concentrations will will cause increases in 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 the global mean surface air temperature, and in fact, th- those greenhouse gases are critical for maintaining the the very habitable climate that we have at present. Um, and uh, you know the 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 question for for these extreme events is you know I think is really about uh, 
what is the what is the likelihood of of having a severe event, and how does how does the increased um, warming from from the increasing greenhouse gas concentrations affect the likelihood and the severity of those events. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we're certainly not at the point of, of attributing any, any one heat wave or any one flood uh, to global warming or to any other cause. Uh, there's a lot of noise in the climate system. But certainly what, what we're seeing this year in the, in the central U.S., in the, in the Corn Belt, is very consistent with uh, what uh, what we've published for for the near term uh, global warming in terms of um, increased severe heat, decreased yields, and uh, then a, a price response in the in the U.S. corn market. Well, I'd like to ask both of you this. I post uh, post this question to both uh, both of you. Why do you think there's such controversy over climate change and global warming? Uh, because you talk about looking at the scientific evidence. Why why does it become a controversial issue? Well, if if I could uh, jump in a little bit, I think that the controversy comes in uh, when it, when you get to this point. Uh, if you have this sound science. Uh, the next question is how do our institutions respond to it with respect to public policy? You know, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And uh, this is where, where governments come in. Um, and it's, it's, it's even something that our own CIA examines uh, for national security because, well, I'll give you an example. If, in fact, sea levels do rise as a result of increasing mean uh, atmospheric temperature, uh, you may have – hundreds of thousands of climate refugees. You know, where are these people going to go? Are they going to cross the border of one sovereign state and go into another? Uh, how are they going to be taken care of? Who's going to take care of them? How will they be accommodated? So they're, they're, uh, it's where the rubber meets the road is how the science translates into, into public policy. That's, that's a very difficult nut to crack, so to speak. Uh, professor? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's – uh, I'm not an expert in in uh, what causes controversy, so uh, <laughs> not really not really equipped to to answer in detail. I mean, I think that you know what what is important to consider is that if there are controversies about um, about what could be done, what should be done uh, in response to global warming, I, I think it's important that those controversies uh, don't. Uh, cast any shadow on our scientific understanding. There certainly are many, many areas uh, of the climate system that we don't understand, and that's why, that's why we continue to, to do science. But uh, just because there's controversy about whether or not to price carbon shouldn't cast any doubt on whether or not uh, we understand the effect of increasing greenhouse gases on global mean temperature. Uh, we know that, that increasing carbon dioxide concentrations uh, will continue to cause uh, increases in in global mean temperature will continue to cause global warming, and that the kinds of events that that uh, most directly and acutely impact us uh, are are likely to to feel the effects of that of that global warming. Both of you, is there a way to change the course, the direction we are going right now? Well, we're we're certainly on a uh, relatively unconstrained course uh, in terms of our. Our global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you know, so our, you know, we're, we we continue to increase our our emissions. Uh, concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continue to increase. So, you know, there certainly are are many ways that have been proposed to to curb uh, those increases. Uh, and you know, there are there are various policy instruments such as uh, cap and trade, such as uh, direct tax on on carbon emissions. Um, there are other uh, ways that have been attempted to incentivize uh, technological innovation in, in alternative energies. So, you know, we certainly, we, each, we have our individual choices that, that are aggregated to the global, the global total, so we each individually have, have options, and, and as societies, we have, we have options as well. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're certainly at, at the moment where there's a lot of room for for changing course, given that we're we're pretty unconstrained in our in our energy consumption and emissions, uh, given given available economic resources. Okay. Yeah, the other element too, of course, is uh, that uh, there are 
the growing economies of China and India. Uh, on a world scale, certainly those economies and their growth have slowed down. There is evidence to suggest just recently in our news that uh, that China's growth rate has uh, come down considerably. But still, it wasn't too long ago that uh, – and for those of you who uh, who don't realize that most of our power in America comes from coal, uh, in China during the – uh, days about five or six years ago when their economy was – well, basically had a gas pedal and no brake pedal. Uh, they were uh, uh, putting online two coal-fired power plants a week, a week in order to uh, to keep up the demand for electricity as people in developing nations come into the middle class. And that's, that's a serious global issue. Okay. Well, thank you uh, both. Uh, enjoyed the discussion. Uh, Sean Boyd, lecturer with the Geography Department at California State University, Fresno, and Professor Noah Deffenbaugh, Stanford University School of Earth Sciences and a fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment. Thank you both. I'm Juanita Stevenson, and you are listening to Valley Edition. The 2012 London Olympics came to a close on Sunday, but as the athletes returned to their home countries, Guest commentator Andrew Fiala says now would be a good time to reevaluate the meaning and values behind our obsession with athletic prowess on this week's edition of The Moral Is. Somewhere deep in our cultural memory is the idea that athletic prowess is connected with virtue. For the ancient Greeks, athletic contests were religious events with social purpose, honoring the dead, preparing for war, and teaching virtues. Contemporary sporting events no longer serve such higher purposes. Religion is not involved, athletes are not preparing for war, and most of us gave up long ago on the idea that athletes could be looked up to as paragons of virtue. Recent scandals at Penn State, in the Olympics, and in professional sports haven't helped. We still expect good sportsmanship, but that is a very vague ideal. It is true that Olympic athletes salute the flag and represent their countries. But the nationalistic competition of the Olympics feels contrived and old-fashioned. We admire Michael Phelps for his individual effort, not for his service on behalf of the nation. Athletic success leads to fame, power, and money, external rewards that have no connection with patriotism, piety, or virtue. Indeed, money and fame create a temptation for bad behavior. It also provides a motive for covering up outright evils, as at Penn State. The sports industry is worth over $200 billion a year. Top pro athletes earn millions, big sports programs have budgets in the tens of millions, and Olympic medalists are able to cash in their medals for lucrative endorsement deals. With big money on the line and no other higher values involved, there's an obvious temptation for bad behavior. One solution is to increase institutional safeguards and penalties. In this regard, institutions like the NCAA and the International Olympic Committee are doing the right thing by enforcing stiff penalties for wrongdoing. But a long-term solution would have to involve a radical change of values. When there is no moral, religious, or political significance to sports and millions to be earned, the temptation to cheat will continue to be significant. Many athletes and coaches do have strong moral characters and personal integrity. But in a culture where winning is a path to riches, misbehavior is not surprising. Good sportsmanship is admirable, but you can't take it to the bank. We'll never return to the Greek ideal of the athletic contest as a moral, political, and religious event. Nor should we. The Greeks were often brutal and ethnocentric. But it is inspiring to imagine a world in which athletic prowess could be linked to piety and patriotism rather than to profit. For The Moral Is, this is Andrew Fiala. The commentary series The Moral Is was produced by Valley Public Radio in association with the Bonner Center for Character Education at California State University, Fresno. The opinions expressed are those of the writer and not necessarily Valley Public Radio. Send us your comments with an email. The address is talk at kvpr. Dot org. 
Welcome back. I'm Juanita Stevenson, and this is Valley Edition. You're listening to Valley Edition. Well, the Fresno County Library is urging us all to participate in California Reads. It's an event designed to promote reading and discussion. This year's selection, the book Farewell to Manzanar. Uh, Here to discuss uh, it with us is uh, Roberta Barton with the Fresno County Public Library. Um, Thanks for coming in. Thanks for the invite, Juanita. Now, California Reads kind of differs from the Big Read, doesn't it? It's slightly different. The Big Read is a national initiative where it encourages people to read and discuss the same book. California Reads is a statewide initiative. So everyone in California is reading and discussing a book that's chosen from a slate of five titles, I believe. And Fresno County has chosen Farewell to Manzanar for our book. And uh, that that book is very interesting, uh, describing the experience of the author and her family during uh, World War II when thousands of Japanese Americans were placed in internment camps. And exactly. It's kind of very close to home here. It's, it's really a very powerful book, and it actually was, I'd say, the pioneer book that started the awareness of the whole internment experience. And we chose this book at the library because it's got a lot of local relevance. We in this area had two assembly centers where local Japanese families were sent before they went on to permanent camps. And so we've got that distinction. And there's a large Japanese community here, which would find this topic very relevant. But it's also, I think, relevant in any community that's as diverse as ours is. And an opportunity to learn. Exactly. It's not taught a lot in schools, and so it's another opportunity to raise, raise awareness about civil liberties, not just for Japanese, but for all different communities. Now, what are some of the events um, kind of prepared around uh, California Reads? And it's my understanding now this whole thing started earlier this month, and it's going to go through almost the end of September. Right. It's about a month and a half long. We kicked off our news conference last week, and this weekend is going to be a really busy Manzanar weekend. We have a reception at the Art Museum where they're going to open an exhibit of Ansel Adam photographs of the Manzanar oh, internment camp. Oh, and if camp. you haven't seen them, they're really They're powerful. very, very moving. Yes. And after that panel, or after that reception, it's going to be followed immediately by a panel discussion. And this is really a very distinguished panel. There were some three men back in World War II who defied the curfew and the exclusion order to be sent to camp. And there was a legal team of attorneys in 1983 who overturned the convictions of those three men. And we were very fortunate to have three of the attorneys from that original legal team come to participate in our panel discussion. So it's another sort of historical moment, if you would. And really is. But, you know, one of the special treats that, that you get with this event always is the opportunity to meet the author. Exactly. That's next week. And I hope everyone comes out to hear the author share her journey. She's going to be coming on Friday, August 24th to the City College Theater. We're partnering with their Speakers Forum series. Very exciting at 7 p.m. And of course, all of these programs are free. So how can you beat the price? It's a great deal. But you also have, you try to engage the entire community, and you have activities for every age group. We do, we do. We like to include the kids, too. So we've got some cultural and some fun activities thrown in there to kind of balance out the seriousness of the topic. We've got candy sushi programs for the kids. And when I tell people about that, actually, adults want to participate, too. (laughs) That's a lot of fun. And origami and just some story times that center around the culture of Japan. Where can people find this schedule? Because you have activities planned every week, almost every day, daily. And so where can they go to find the activities and where they are? They can go to their local library. We've got a whole calendar with all of the dates and times for all of the programs at each of our 34 branches throughout Fresno County. All of our partners also have flyers, and then they can go to our website at fresnolibrary.org and click on the link for Farewell to Manzanar, and we'll have the schedule online as well. And most of this, all of this is free, correct? It is free, with the exception of the overnight bus trip to Manzanar, but even that is a really great 
offering. It's $125 per person. It's an overnight weekend trip to the actual site of the Manzanar relocation camp. And that price also includes one night of lodging at one of the local hotels. When do people need to sign up for that? I'm sure you probably have a deadline, don't you? The deadline is this week. So if they could call 600-6226 to sign up. We would still love to have them join our bus trip. And right now we just need people to sign up so we can see where we're at with the bus and payment can come later. But okay, we encourage everyone. It's really going to be a powerful trip, I think. It really will be. Uh, Roberta Barton with the Fresno County Public Library. Uh, thank you for coming in to talk about California Reads a program. You've got a great selection. Thanks. We uh, think this time so around. Uh, and. Uh, it's very – and a lot of activities to engage the public. Exactly. So we hope we'll see everyone out at all of the programs. Thanks. Thank you, Roberta, for coming in. Uh, that is all for today's Valley Edition. You can hear audio archives and subscribe to our podcast online at kbpr.org. We welcome your comments and suggestions, and you can also email us at talk at kbpr.org. For audio engineer Marv Allen, production and operations manager Don Weaver, and executive producer Joe Moore, I'm Winita Stevenson. This is Valley Edition on Valley Public Radio. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation.